9.09 and a half. Good morning, folks. Welcome. It's the party line. Special edition today. We're going to get caught up with the Athens County Health Department. Dr. James Gaskell joins us live. And our focus this morning can be a number of things, but especially vaccinations. Childhood vaccinations. And if there are such things, adult vaccinations. It's the party line on WATH. Dr. Gaskell, good morning. Good morning, Dave. Welcome, man. And uh, we've known each other many years. And uh, I, you know, I remember you um, when you simply had a practice. You know, you were a doctor. And your specialty was? Pediatrics. Yeah. For 35 years. Do you miss that? Greatly. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing like that one-on-one encounter. Uh-huh. It, it's, it's sort of magical. Uh, for me, it was a joy because I liked the kids. The kids were bright-eyed. They well, were sure. They smiled and laughed, and I enjoyed seeing the kids. And, and your nature, you had a way of... You know, if they were scared of going to the dock and that sort of thing, you put them at ease pretty quickly. Oh, I liked them. Yeah. I liked them. They were fun. Uh, yeah, and, and most of the time with children, you can solve their problem. We don't have very many children that die. If you're in a general pediatric practice, most of them do well and have solvable problems. Uh, it's rare uh, to have a child die in a general pediatric practice. Right. So, so um, it was mostly joyful. Well, um, you did a great job at it. Do, and, and as I, my initial question was, do you miss it? And the answer was yes. Greatly. Yeah. Well, um, but you are, um, let's see, what would the exact title be with the health department? Well, I mean, I enjoy working at the health department. Oh, people there are wonderful. I, we I we have great people, and we prevent disease. We do lots of good. Wasn't implying otherwise. Yeah. But um, your title there. Yeah, I'm the health commissioner. Okay. Which means that I'm the medical director. I worry about things like immunizations and outbreaks of infectious disease. Oh, and I worry about clean water and uh, good sewage systems and things like that. Yeah. And, and mercy, all of that stuff, so important. Um, I, we were talking before the show to this morning, and, and I remember as a child, uh, right after church on a Sunday, uh, there was this huge gathering of young people as well as their parents, and they were visiting the gymnasium at, my, at, at the high school and multiple very lengthy lines, and we were getting the um, polio vaccine that required a shot. Do you remember what year that was? Oh, I'm going to say early 60s. Yeah, that was the Jonas Salk vaccine. That was the Salk vaccine produced by funding in part from the March of Dimes, which was FDR's program. He initiated the March of Dimes. He had polio, as a matter of fact. And that uh, uh, created a great interest in this 
terribly debilitating disease. Polio resulted in paralysis of an arm or a leg or maybe a couple arms and legs, and sometimes death. If you had bulbar polio, which affected your breathing center, you might die or end up on an iron lung for a particularly long period of time. So polio was a scourge, and parents worried greatly about their children getting polio. I I was somewhere up, I want to say Marysville or somewhere like that, Mm -hmm. and touring a, a former health facility, and they had these iron lungs and pictures on the wall of people actually inside them, and their head was sticking out, but and maybe the feet too but the rest of the body was encapsulated in this pressurized tank yes and oh mercy terribly difficult situation i graduated graduated from medical school in 64 so i didn't see polio Uh, i did not diagnose a case of polio in my career but i did see one kid at university of west virginia in an iron lung and uh, I imagine what a terrible life that must be. They, didn't, they weren't in an iron lung indefinitely, but certainly for some weeks and perhaps uh, even some months, uh, polio was a frightening disease for parents. Jonas Salk developed the Salk vaccine against polio in 1955, mm-hmm. and by 1960 it was widely used. Uh, That was followed by the oral vaccine, Sabin's oral vaccine, which came along about 1962 or three. But indeed, as soon as Salk's vaccine was released, uh, parents lined up with their children to uh, get the vaccine. In those days, vaccines were uh, uh, widely accepted and uh, in a way longed for. Everyone was excited when the polio vaccine came about, and the kids were, because the kids weren't allowed to go to the swimming pool and gather because the parents were afraid they'd get polio, and indeed that's how you got polio, was in large gatherings of children who infected each other. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those infections were asymptomatic. They, they got infected, they developed immunity, and they didn't have any symptoms. Uh, uh, there were some um, asymptomatic infections, of course. But yeah, uh, that was a time of uh, wide vaccine acceptance. And the beginning, that was in part the beginning of a series of vaccines that came about uh, against childhood diseases. Right. And part of what we want to talk about today is what vaccines are current and, and how they're administered and at what ages and that sort of thing. And the list has grown, hasn't it? Oh, my goodness, it's grown. Uh, it's grown from the time that I practiced medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but of course, what we've had now is we've had a major pandemic for three years. The kids have missed out on getting their vaccines because they, for a while, certainly couldn't go to the doctor's office. And many of them fell behind. And some of the childhood illnesses are so contagious that if you don't have widespread immunity and you haven't immunized almost all of your children, the... Uh, the disease will uh, come back. It'll resurrect itself. And in particular, uh, measles is a highly contagious disease. One case of measles, uh, a kid with measles in a a group of kids who have not been immunized will infect uh, about 10. The infection rate for 
COVID, on the other hand, is one person will infect three people who haven't been vaccinated. Mm. This is one in 10. So uh, it's highly contagious. And if your vaccination rate falls at all, uh, in short order, you're likely to have measles. And as a matter of fact, in Columbus, they did have an outbreak of measles. Uh, Just recently. Yeah, not very long ago from uh, November until actually December 24th was their last case. They had 85 cases. Yeah. And uh, they had a number of hospitalizations. Measles is uh, a very uh, a serious disease. Uh, sometimes kids have measles encephalitis. It affects their brain. And as a matter of fact, in the days where we were seeing a lot of measles, for every 1,000 kids infected with measles, one would die. And uh, that was usually due to encephalitis. Uh, it was due to brain infection, and there was no treatment for it in those days. It was just supportive therapy. Uh, and so in the days when we were having outbreaks of measles, uh, uh, one in 1,000 kids dying from measles was uh, significant, uh, of great concern. So the outbreak in Columbus resulted in, uh, they had 85 cases, 34 hospitalizations. Uh, all of them had been, no, I take that back, 78 of them had un been unvaccinated. 78 of the 85 cases were unvaccinated. They were uh, age one through five years, 65% uh, 60, of them. Some of them were at an age when they were just a little bit too young to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. The first vaccination for measles in general is occurs at one year of age. That provides protection about 95% of the time, and you get a second one uh, as you enter kindergarten, and that moves your uh, protection rate up to about 99%. So two shots of measles vaccine uh, protect you 95% of the time. And now measles vaccine is given as MMR today, measles, mumps, and German measles. But measles was the first one produced uh, in the uh, early 60s. And that was followed by uh, development of a mumps vaccine and by development of a rubella vaccine, commonly known as German measles. So in the uh, in the United States, we have had over the years uh, minor outbreaks of measles because it is so contagious. It is brought from other countries, and there are a lot of countries that don't have the public health system and the medical system that we have in the United States. And so, uh, uh, people entering the United States from other countries will bring the disease in. And if we don't have a high immunization rate, up around 93 or 94 percent of our populace we can uh, have children develop measles uh, in the United States. And usually it's been brought in by uh, some child uh, from another country where the immunization rates are not nearly as high. As a matter of fact, recently we got a CDC health advisory sent to the uh, health department reminding us that before international travel, everybody needs to make sure that their immunizations are up to date, including measles, particularly measles, uh, as, as, the, as, as the pandemic has ended, people are starting to travel again. Mm. And the uh, CDC has recognized that these people are going to other countries where uh, measles is uh, still uh, uh, apparent, still uh, occurring, and that we need to have our immunization rates very high before you travel. You need to check and make sure that you've been immunized against a variety of things, including okay. measles. But, you know, I'm... I think I'm 74. Um, I have in my wallet a card that mentions the various COVID things. 
Yes. And what date I got it and so on. I don't know where my records are regarding all these previous immunizations. Is there some place one can go and retrieve that information? There's a central repository in the state, and we have access to that now. It, it requires the individual who administered your vaccine to have put that, sent that to the state, and it needs to be... But Dr. Uh, Frederick Schaefer, who was on part of our osteopathic establishment when they first started the osteopathic school here right. up in Worthington, I don't know if he... He probably didn't because in those days when yeah. you got your vaccines, they didn't have that. They didn't have that central location where you're supposed to put all the vaccines. Now your COVID vaccines that you've gotten at the health department, of course, they're all they're all registered at the state. And if you come to the health department and say, "I want to see my vaccine records for COVID," uh, our uh, uh, people who staff the health department can access those records for you. But your earlier vaccines, your MMR, your measles, mumps, and German measles, your DPT. And your hip vaccine, hip vaccine wasn't around when you were a kid, so you probably didn't get that one. But but the early vaccines that you got, uh, uh, if you have no records, uh, you're going to have to presume that you had them, because uh, my parents were very diligent. Well, if, there may be some records yeah, somewhere. I'm finding them, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, well, I, I'm looking here at a list. And so they've got it broken down, birth to 15 months. And then the next section is uh, 18 months to 18 years. Okay, and when you look at this, I, I doubt I've had everything that is listed here. They weren't even developed when you were a kid, okay. some of them. So, you know, at the, uh, right after your birth, you're supposed to have the first dose of hepatitis B. Mm-hmm. Um, within a month um, of your birth, you're supposed to have a second dose, or or within a month to two months. Right. Then. Then you get a third one. Later. Um, Later. Yeah, I'm just shy of being a year old. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the next one: rotavirus, RV. Um, you didn't get that. That wasn't available when you were a kid. What is rotavirus? Rotavirus causes a serious gastrointestinal diarrheal disease. Okay. And kids get dehydrated and yeah, get hospitalized sometimes with rotavirus. It's a, it's one of the most serious diarrheal diseases uh, known to man, if you will. And we can now immunize it. Now, you know, everybody presumes that we develop these vaccines, and uh, they are going to be completely innocuous forever, and we won't uh, have to worry about them. Well, there's a reporting system, and physicians are, and health departments are required to report any adverse effects that occur as a result of the vaccines. Now, vaccines are not released without trials, uh, and there are thousands of people involved in the trials, and if there are any reactions to the vaccine, they are reported. But the trials involve maybe 25,000 people or 40,000 people, not 600,000 people. And when we start to administer vaccines, we're talking about giving thousands and millions of doses. And some of these side effects are very rare, like they occur once in 25,000 or 50,000 doses. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a 
vaccine adverse reporting system at the CDC that uh, physicians and health departments can report to any kind of side effect from the vaccine or problem. So we report them if there are problems. The CDC follows that and then uh, uh, issues alerts and sometimes halts production of the vaccine. The rotavirus vaccine was one of those. We gave lots of doses and then fairly rarely we had problems with something called intussusception. And intussusception occurs when a bowel telescopes into itself. And you can imagine that causes a bowel obstruction and serious problems. It's treatable, but it occurred after the rotavirus vaccine. So they halted administration of rotavirus vaccine uh, and reformulated the vaccine so that they produced, a, if you will, a smaller amount of antigen uh, so the body reacted a little less vigorously and improved the vaccine, began to administer it again. Now that was, oh, you know, 20 years ago. So the vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine today is very safe, but it's the result in part of the vaccine reporting system uh, that's available to us. And anytime a new vaccine comes out, like the COVID vaccine, any reactions that we saw other than sore arms and sore legs and that sort of thing. We didn't report that. If you had a little fever, you had a little sore arm or sore leg, we did, that was an immune response. That wasn't a serious reaction. We didn't report those. But mm. anything serious, we reported. And that results in a, a, a system that is uh, responsible and uh, reactive to uh, ongoing science. Uh, they can't have trials of giving the vaccine to 100,000 people uh, we get we get that sort of trial, if you will, when we start giving it. The trials usually involve, oh, 15 or 20,000 people. And if they don't have serious reactions, then they release the vaccine. Well, this rotavirus, uh, the second to be... Um the second such vaccination, um, we're talking about vaccinations in general, particularly for children. Um, you get two doses typically, and one occurs at two months of age, the other at four. Now, um, and then there's, I guess, a third also sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now. It depends upon the company. There are two different companies. One you get three and one you just get two. I see. Now, um, then the next one, and this one's been around a while, I think, um, diphtheria and tetanus, right? Oh, that one was developed in the, uh, uh, in the 40s, actually. Tetanus vaccine goes way back. That's one of the earliest developments. Now, uh, that's a DPT, mm -hmm. diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. Diphtheria, we don't see cases of diphtheria anymore. That would be very rare. Diphtheria is an infection of your throat, and it causes a membrane to form that interferes with your breathing. So diphtheria is a very dangerous disease. We haven't, I've never seen a case of diphtheria hmm. in, in, in my uh, career. Knock on wood. Never seen one. That's right. My father's brother died from diphtheria in the 30s. Hmm. There was no treatment for diphtheria in those days. They treated it at home and uh, it, his airway got completely obstructed. He was a three-year-old and died. Hmm. And my dad often talked about that. That was something he witnessed in his own home because people didn't get hospitalized in those days. That was in the 30s. So diphtheria is a bad disease. Tetanus, everybody knows about tetanus. Serious disease, frightening disease. Uh, and pertussis is whooping cough. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to tell you that the vaccine for pertussis 
is not the very best antigen. It doesn't provoke a good immune response. And so you have to get, if you will, multiple pertussis vaccines uh, uh, sort of throughout your life. They, they continue to boost you with DPTs every 10 years if you're an adult. If you're a kid, you get uh, something called Tdap, tetanus, pertussis, and diphtheria uh, roughly about every... Uh, well, you get a number of doses, you get three doses, you get one at five years of age, you get one at 12 years of age, and then you're supposed to get one uh, every 10 years thereafter. If you are a pregnant woman, you will get one in your third trimester. You'll get a Tdap, a tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine in the third trimester of your pregnancy. So you'll develop antibodies against whooping cough so that your baby will prote be protected during the first few months of life. Those antibodies from the mother are passed on to the baby and we can't immunize babies in, against pertussis until they're all oh, two months. They can get their first shot, but it doesn't produce much response. They get another one, two, four, six months, they get three doses, and it takes uh, about six months before they get a good antibody response and they are protected against pertussis. And pertussis in babies, in two-month-old babies, is a serious disease and some of them die. So we we immunize their mothers who then produce high levels of antibodies against whooping cough and pass it on to the babies and that protects them in the first few months of life while we're immunizing them and getting good antibody production against pertussis. It's a little bit complicated, but uh, uh, the system works better than it used to because most of the fatalities due to whooping cough occur in the first year of life, if you will. If you're a four-year-old and you get whooping cough, you're not likely to die, but if you get it in the first year of life, you might. Well, this link, this list that I found, um, and, and we're at this point just working from birth to 15 months of age. Um, and, I mean, there's a dozen things on here. Yes, we have to give... Uh, if you will, uh, multiple shots at one visit in order to accomplish that immunization program. So uh, unfortunately, uh, we treat the little kids a little bit like their pincushions. They come in and they'll get three shots. Mm -hmm. But uh, because the immunizations are so safe, they don't usually have much in the way of reactions. Right. They, they cry because of pain, but they don't usually have reactions. Uh, well, then after that, uh, they, the list is from 18 months to 18 years. Yes. And it's a lengthy thing, too. Yeah, and we, we get into immunizations against meningitis, uh, particularly uh, prior to attending college. Uh, the uh, high school kids uh, should get uh, meningitis shots to protect them because uh, they, they go to college and live in close proximity to each other. And there have been outbreaks of meningitis in colleges. So we now immunize the kids against meningitis before they attend college. It starts about the time they're 12 years old. They get their first immunization against meningitis, and then we give them more. It's now recommended that they get all their meningitis shots before they attend college. Ohio University, uh, 20 years ago now, had an outbreak of meningitis. They had 13 cases uh, on campus and they had one die. Hmm. But the other kids that had meningitis were seriously ill. And it was an outbreak of a type of meningitis, a meningococcal meningitis that we did not have a vaccine for. It was type B meningococcal meningitis. And we had the CDC come to the OU's campus and conduct an investigation. And, and there were four young people from the CDC, uh, very bright and capable people. 
and conducted this investigation and discovered that indeed, like we suspected, the kids who were most likely to get meningitis were those who were partying, uh, there was lots of kissing going on and that sort of thing because this form of meningitis was passed from uh, saliva uh, to from one person to the other. Words. You, you got meningitis, this type of meningitis, if you were up close and personal with people. So mm-hmm. the most social kids, the kids who partied and kissed a lot of people were more likely to get the meningitis. And, yeah. uh, and so we um, let them know that. And, and I don't know if, if anything that we did accomplished uh, uh, a decrease in cases of meningitis, but it sort of abruptly came to a halt. Well, I, <coughs> I went to this uh, website, let's see, Immunization schedules, and it's uh, oh well, it's got all this detail. But then you know, so if I'm a parent and I haven't followed this perfectly, um, they have a, a, a significant section on ketchup, not not ketchup the the like ketchup. mustard ketchup. Catch-up vaccines. Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. Um, And, uh, you know, all is not lost if you have failed on the schedule a bit. No. And that's why, uh, actually, in uh, October, I wrote a letter to the parents uh, in the school system, the Athens City County school system, and actually disseminated to the—we disseminated it all over the county. I reminded parents that their kids may have fallen behind in their vaccine programs due to the pandemic mm-hmm. because they didn't see their doctors. And I reminded them that it was important that they catch up. And if they didn't know what vaccines they needed, we would be happy to look over their uh, vaccine uh, card mm-hmm. and, uh, and catch, them up, ca- catch them up on their vaccines. And they could go to their family doctor, of course, and do that too. But uh, I reminded them that the immunization rates for whooping cough and measles were down 20%, and uh, immunizations against uh, meningitis were down 17% uh, since the onset of the pandemic. And I thought it was important that they try to catch up uh, as the kids went back to school. So, and we did see a number of kids at the health department come in and have them look over, have, have our nurses look over their vaccine uh, card and we had to catch them up on some of their vaccines. Yeah, it's, it's uh, fairly common during the pandemic for oh, many of the kids to get uh, behind in now, their vaccine programs. Another thing that we should mention is that you should check with your doctor if you're going to travel, oh, my. Pat- particularly internationally. Yes. And um, because there may be some thing in the country you're going to be visiting that you aren't necessarily specifically uh, protected against because of a vaccine. Did I say that right? You said that right. There okay. are certain, yeah, you, you need to make sure that your vaccine program is up to date. Mm-hmm. But there are some diseases that you can get that uh, there is no vaccination for, like malaria. You know, uh, recently we had four cases of malaria diagnosed in Florida and one case in Texas. We don't see much malaria in the United States, and we, we only see it in this deeply southern states because they have the mosquito hmm. in Florida and Texas, the Anopheles mosquito, that we don't have here in Ohio. But uh, if you are traveling to certain countries like Central America where they have a malaria, you can take prophylactic medicine that will prevent you from getting malaria if you're bitten by a mosquito uh, 
carrying malaria. You're bitten by a mosquito that carries malaria. So right. you can take prophylaxis. Uh, and I remember going to Honduras on a mission trip oh, eight years ago, and I had to take a drug once a week uh, to prevent me from getting malaria in Honduras. I think I had something like that for my um, Ecuador experience. Indeed. Yeah. And you probably had to take one pill a week starting two weeks before you traveled, and then you take it the whole time you're there, one pill a week. And then after you get home, you take it for a couple of weeks. So there's a program. And you, you uh, depending upon where you go and the type of malaria that you might encounter, the chemoprophylactis or the, the antibiotic that you take uh, differs uh, because there are five different forms of malaria. And right. the, the countries all have different types of malaria. And so your prophylaxis... Uh, medication might differ according to the country that you're going to. Well, um, what, is, what is the biggest focus for the Athens County Health Department today? Well, you know, we're, we're uh, catching the kids up with their vaccines, but we're still, uh, even though uh, we wish that we were done with COVID, we're not done with COVID. And uh, the CDC is going to recommend uh, one more, if you will, booster in the fall. And all of us have been getting something called, uh, older adults have been getting something called uh, the bivalent booster. Mm -hmm. And the bivalent COVID booster, and we've had a couple of them, uh, contains the original COVID virus, the ancestral virus, they call it, the first one that affected us in 2019 and 2020. It contains that one and contains the newly circulating or most recent circulating virus. So the bivalent booster contains the original ancestral virus plus what's circulating today, and that's been by and large Omicron. Well, what the CDC has discovered that those bivalent boosters are fairly effective, but at some point in time, what they found was the our immune system responds very best and produces more antibodies to that virus that they have been exposed to repeatedly, which means that the ancestral virus, which is a part of the bivalent booster, is the virus that we're really familiar with because we've gotten multiple shots against that virus. And the, the immune system has a tendency to partly ignore the new virus. So that means that this bivalent booster has been good at boosting the original virus, but not as good at boosting the more recent virus that affects us, the Omicron virus. Now, these all keep evolving. Oh, my. Or changing. And, oh. and so something you were uh, something you were vaccinated before, now that disease or whatever we want to call it, has altered itself and and so sometimes you need these updates right indeed and 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 the new vaccine for the fall will probably contain the circulating viruses for this summer mm -hmm. and they are xbb 1.5 uh, xbb 2.6 uh, and there's an, another xbb uh no, 1.5, 1.6, and 2.3. There are three of them circulating. Hmm. They are all Omicrons, but the most common one is XBB 1.5. And for the fall, 
what they are going to do is give us that a vaccine against that one alone. They're not going to include the ancestral one because that that we've we've been exposed to that original virus so many times in so many booster shots and so many bivalent shots that they think that that may be that may interfere with the good production of antibodies against the XBB 1.5. And if you get a vaccine against 1.5, it'll include those other omicrons. It'll have it'll have uh, protection against the other omicrons that are circulating this summer. So there will probably only be one virus in in the booster shot that we get in the fall. It won't have the original one. It's okay, called okay, but I mean, I I'm now getting worried. Um, I haven't had a vaccination for quite a long time. Yeah, did you? Except the COVID stuff. Yeah, you got the COVID stuff, but I bet you got a bivalent somewhere along the line. You got one. You got a bivalent probably last winter, January, February, or maybe November. Okay. I'll bet you got a bivalent. That's the the bivalent. Would that be listed on my COVID sheet? That'll be listed okay, on your so COVID. So I'm reaching for my wallet right now. It'll be on your COVID sheet. And you either got it in October, November, or maybe early winter. Okay. Ah, there we go. This this is getting tattered now. Mm-hmm. I've been carrying it for so long. But let's see. Here, I'll just hand it to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you had you had Pfizer's, then you had another Pfizer, and you had another Pfizer, and you missed your bivalent booster. Oh. Do you have another card? You, oh no. no 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 no! I take it back. I take it back. It's you, on the back side. It's it? on the back side. Okay. You got one in October. Okay. Okay. You got one in October, and so you're up to date. Now, what you'll need is this coming year in the fall, probably September, October, you're going to need a new booster against those three Omicrons that are circulating this summer. Mm -hmm. There are three Omicrons circulating this summer. They don't cause serious disease. They cause respiratory illness. Few people hospitalized. People with serious underlying conditions might be hospitalized, but and there haven't been fatalities. But they'll boost you. It's like getting your flu booster. Mm-hmm. Every every year you get a flu booster with a with a hopefully with a new virus, and that's what this is going to be like. And probably what'll happen is you'll come into the health department, and one arm will give you your new flu shot for the season, and then the other arm will give you your COVID booster, which will contain the viruses that are circulating this summer. Yeah, and, and it may come through your regular doctor's appointment, too. Like sure. I think um, Dr. Sheets, Jared, I think he gave me a flu shot somewhere along the way. Yes. All right. Well, uh, you know, and our flu shot, uh, it changes a little bit every year because the viruses that produce influenza change in a year, and uh, we, uh, we use what's occurring in Australia, which... Uh, has a se- influenza season about six or nine months before ours. So we see what's circulating there. Our virologists yeah. determine what needs to go into the influenza vaccine based on what's circulating in Australia, and they develop a vaccine during the summer months that we get in the fall. I think the same thing is going to happen with COVID because the viruses that are circulating this summer uh, are the 
causing COVID are, are different than what circulated last year, and they can develop pretty rapidly a new COVID vaccine to cover those uh, summer viruses, uh, Omicron viruses that are circulating. And so probably this will uh, develop into a pattern of, because uh, uh, COVID uh, uh, occurs uh, throughout the year. Influenza is by and large a seasonal disease from November through March, but COVID is, uh, occurs throughout the season, throughout the 12 months of the year. It, it's not as seasonal. A little bit more seasonal because in the summer people go indoors more and then they spread their disease, but uh, people certainly get COVID in the summer months. Folks, I, I've been negligent here. I, I've not uh, mentioned uh, more than just at the beginning of the program who our guest is today. <coughs> Excuse me. Our guest is Dr. James Gaskell. Um, and most people that if they know him personally it's Dick Gaskell um, I assume that's from a middle name of some kind yeah uh, my, my dad was a William James Jr. and I was a James Richard and so there you go. My, my mother didn't want to call me Jim because yeah. it confused me with my dad who was Jim Sure. and so uh, she called me Dick uh, and actually it was named after my mother's brother Richard Wilson uh, and <laughs> so, so uh, I, my uncle Dick and I, if we were in the same uh, room, and they'd say Dick, and we'd both sort yeah, of jump. But of course, uh, yeah. Okay, so now, um, was your father a, a, a doctor as well? No, but you know, he had wanted to be a doctor, and he was raised during the Great Depression, mm -hmm. and they, he didn't go to college. They couldn't afford to send him to college. Now um, you went to WVU, right? I, I went to a small college in Pennsylvania called Juniata College that you've probably never heard of. No, sir. They're in central Pennsylvania, Huntington, uh, Pennsylvania. They had a strong science department and a good pre-med program. So uh, I went to Juniata and played a little football and baseball and took pre-med and got in Pitt Medical School. Uh -huh. But then uh, after I graduated from Pitt, I did my internship at WVU. Okay. And then I was in the service a couple of years, and we've talked about this before because you had a long service experience. Well, and some, yeah. Yeah, you, you did. And then uh, I went to WVU for my pediatric training too. So I did an internship, then interrupted by a couple of years in the service, and I went back and did a three-year residency in pediatrics and then came here in 1970. I, I didn't have a long experience, but I had an amazing experience yeah. in uh, during my three years in the service. Yeah. Mine was only two. I, yeah. I had a wonderful experience, too. I was a flight surgeon. Uh, the, uh, the military trained me a little bit in ear, nose, and throat, and, and I learned how to do flight physicals and uh, aircraft crash investigations and that sort of thing. And they sent me to a hard-duty station in San Francisco where I flew around on the West Coast and did flight physicals. There. Neat. Yeah. It was a good... So, you know, I, I, I have in mind a question, and I, I hope it's not troubling. Okay. Medical doctor, MD. DO, doctor of osteopathic. Um... I mentioned Dr. Frederick Schaefer earlier. Um, when we first founded the osteopathic school here at the university, I was attending a social event at Charlie Ping's home. And I walked in and standing by the piano was my doctor as a child, Frederick Schaefer. 
and we you know hugged and everything it was so cool and he was so proud of his osteopathic background and that Ohio University was was establishing this new college and um, you're an MD right sure yeah um, I taught at the medical school for five years I think it was a fine medical school. Of course. Originally, osteopathy, and many people know a lot more about osteopathy than I do, it was founded uh, without allopathic principles, which means I don't think they use medicine. They, they use manipulation. Mm -hmm. uh, the founders use manipulation. But uh, as the years went by, uh, that's changed. And, and if you compare the curriculum and uh, uh, osteopathic medical school to the curriculum, let's say at the University of Pittsburgh, you won't find much difference. Right. Uh, although at the osteopathic school, they will teach manipulation and they won't teach that at the University of Pittsburgh. So it, they'll teach uh, at the osteopathic school, uh, and I wasn't privy to any of the courses in manipulation because I never had that and I didn't teach that. I taught traditional right. allopathic medicine uh, right. diagnosis and, and, and treatment of, uh, you know, traditional diseases but I had great admiration they they, they have a, a, I think a wonderful curriculum they have a really strong program they do produce uh, primary care physicians which means uh, uh, internists uh, pediatricians uh, family doctors my uh, daughter is engaged to a young man who's a graduate of uh, the uh, Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine he's in a residency at uh, Riverside Hospital mm -hmm. is entering his third year. He's going to be a wonderful doctor. He uh, uh, is smart and capable and kind. Uh, and uh, Michael, uh, I'm really proud of him. And uh, uh, they're going to get married this fall. Is there, that's cool. Great story. Is there a shortage of general practice docs? I mean, it seems like nowadays I hear so many people talk about he's a doctor and he's he specializes in this or that or whatever or she. But the point is general practice doctors, family docs. Mm -hmm. um, there is a shortage. There's a shortage of, pe of pediatricians, family doctors, and, and internists, which are the primary care doctors. You have to know everything. People come to you. Uh, you are not subspecialized. You have to know a bit about everything. It's challenging. Not, mm -hmm. not to suggest that the super specialists aren't challenged too. But if you are, let's say, a hematologist, you need to know a lot about diseases of the blood, right. but you don't have to know a lot about lung diseases. If you're a generalist, you have to know something about everything. Infectious diseases. And so, it's comfortable to be an infectious disease specialist in a major medical center or, say, a hematologist or an oncologist, which treat those people treat individuals with cancer, mm -hmm. or, a, let's say, a, a neurosurgeon or cardiovascular surgeon. Those are relatively narrow specialties requiring great expertise, but they, they have a relatively narrow focus of attention. So they can be get very comfortable with what they do. Well, I know you've loved your career. 
And, and then let me ask you, if, if, um, if you were a teenager today and considering the future, would you have gone the very same course? I would have. Yeah, I would have. That's cool. Um, I would have. I, I mean, I like the families. I like the kids. I like the generalness of it all. I mean, you got to see a little bit of everything. And most of the time, I didn't have to send the children to super specialists. Occasionally, I had to send them to Columbus for maybe, uh, occasionally, I'd have a diabetic who was really difficult to control, mm-hmm. and I'd send them to the endocrinologist at Children's sure. Hospital. Sure. Uh, and, and, but I, I, I liked uh, play, practicing general medicine. It was challenging. You had to, uh, you had to keep up. And there were easy ways to keep up. You listen. I, in those days, I listened to tapes and then DVDs. Uh, and nowadays, they listen to podcasts. Uh, there are <laughs> newsletters that allow you to keep up. You have to find a way to be efficient mm-hmm. and keep up to date and still have a life. Yeah. Because, you know, we all want to have an enjoyable life. So you can't spend all your time looking at journals. So you find ways to keep up that are uh, efficient, and but you must keep up because I'm, the information just turns over all the time, Dave. I mean, uh, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I receive about 300 emails a day. I'm not kidding. I spend two hours a day just with that, and you know, if I if I don't, then the next day it's up to you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I just, and I don't subscribe to things that aren't uh, important to me. You know, it's not miscellaneous stuff. Now, you don't have to respond to all those emails. Oh, mercy, you, no. You probably you delete them. One out of ten? Yep. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's well, let, let's, let's do a different thing here. The health department. Um you are the health commissioner. Um, you've been in that role quite some time now. Um, as you, I'm sure there's conferences and so on where county officials meet up. And when you meet people in a similar position with other counties, um, how do we rate? How, oh. do, we, how do we stack up? Uh, what have you learned from somebody else that you'd like to impose that we don't have yet? Da 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 da. Right? Yeah, we have uh, health commissioner meetings uh, twice a year. Okay. A- and you find out what's going on in the state, and you find out what your colleagues are doing. Um, and we have programs that other counties don't have. Some of them, we have some programs that they don't have. We have something called a harm reduction clinic. A what? Harm reduction clinic. Harm reduction. Harm reduction clinic. Okay, got it. Yeah. Uh, that's a clinic that uh, deals with the substance using community, the people sure. who are using heroin. We give them, we exchange uh, clean needles for dirty needles. Uh, we give them naloxone, which is a drug that reverses overdose. Right. We give them uh, immunizations when necessary. We give them some food. We test them for hepatitis C and HIV, which are bloodborne infections that they are likely to acquire. Um, we treat them with kindness and respect, something that they don't get very many places. And some places don't have a harm reduction clinic because their board of health won't approve such a program because they think it's aiding and abetting those people who are using drugs. Luckily, our Board of Health, which is a 
we have a fairly progressive board, agreed that our incidence of hepatitis C, which is a bloodborne infection, uh, was too high, and our incidence of hepatitis B was too high. It had grown very rapidly over several years, and we needed to do something about it. And it was an indication that we had uh, intravenous drug users using dirty needles infecting each other. So they uh, were willing to uh, go ahead with a harm reduction clinic. We meet once a week and exchange dirty needles for clean needles, hmm. uh, provide them with naloxone, give them... Uh, hepatitis uh, B uh, immunizations and, and COVID immunizations. We've got two minutes. Just thought I'd let you know. Um, so, yeah, that sounds like um, a worthwhile mm -hmm. thing. But not all, not all the health departments have that. They I haven't can, been able to get it. I can passed. see that there would be some who might object. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, the point is you do meet with your peers about the state. Yeah. And... Um, you can trade um, successes and failures. We do. We have uh, we have two meetings a year. They're three-day meetings ordinarily. Usually, the individuals from the state uh, have some lectures. Uh, they they keep us up to date regarding uh, actually, if you will, CDC uh, recommendations and changes that are occurring yeah. uh, in public health at the CDC level. So, and we have some wonderful speakers too. Um. Dick, we always appreciate your coming by. Uh, Dr. James Gaskell, um, who is our health commissioner for Athens County and um, um, a medical doctor um, in the Athens County Health Department. Um, and, and our principal topic today was going to be, you know, childhood um, vaccinations and immunizations and that sort of thing. And we, we did that earlier. Folks, all these programs are uh, recorded and available via podcast. Just go to our website. Anything you want to add? We've got uh, 30 seconds. If parents haven't checked on their child's immunizations, they should check now and make sure they're up to date. Okay. And David, I always enjoy our conversations. I've known <laughs> you a long time. Yeah. We always have a nice time together. Well, we'll keep doing it, all right? All right. Okay, folks, um, let's see. Weather-wise, let's see, it was 69 when we 